Amen. Hey, um, it's great to have a, a bookkeeper that can also lead us in worship. Uh, amen. So, um, wherever Nate is, he's probably waiting until I get done talking about him. So, um, thank you, Nate and, uh, and, and team. Uh, su- such a great job leading us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going to be camping out as we continue our series that we're calling Storyline. And we're simply asking the question, how do we live a better story? How, how do we live a better story? And throughout this series, we've been, the short answer to that that we've been saying every week is that we, we give our story to the story of God. Uh, because the story of God has been going on a lot longer than our story. Um, and this just in, it will continue long after you are gone as well. So how do we, how, how do we do that? How do we live a better story? I, um, was invited this week <clears throat> to play, not because I'm good, but, uh, because people love me. I was invited this week to play in a golf tournament. Um, and so after I, uh, suffered through around an 80 degree weather, we, um, had a, there was a buffet and a banquet afterwards also. Um, and I love to eat. I, I, I mean, I love to eat and I'm not a, I'm not a foodie. Um, I don't care if my cow ate grass when he was growing up. I, I'm just, I'm more worried about how he tastes when I eat him rather than what he ate when he, so, um, I, I just, I want it to taste good and I want there to be a lot of it. And this buffet fit that bill well. And so I was going through the buffet line and, and I think they intentionally give you small plates. And I started out and it was a Mexican buffet. Um, and I started out with some chips and those took up a little bit of my plate and I um, added some beans to it and that took up some of my plate. And even though I don't like rice, um, I saw it in front of me and since it was there, I took some of it too. Um, and I eventually got to the main course, which was this like fajita deal that looked absolutely delicious. But by that time, my plate was um, embarrassingly full already. And if you frequent buffets, and no, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, um, uh, you know that feeling of, uh, all right, I, I blew it on the front end, and now I've got to figure out how to discreetly get what I really want. And so you start to move things to the side and create a sort of volcano of the goods in the middle, at least. Or, or maybe you garnish a little bit on top. I don't know what your technique is, but that's mine. And I started to think, as I studied this passage and thought about that delicious buffet, I started to think, man, how, how similar is, is life? Where, where, where we often uh, sort of relegate the important things in life. To the, to the back burner, to the, to the, to the end, where, where we jam pack our lives so full of superfluous things that when the things that really matter come up, we just don't have room for them. We just don't have the, we just don't have the capacity. I think we as people, or, or maybe here, let me say this better. I, I think I, as a person, perpetually settle for easy instead of choosing what's best. I I choose what's easy. I choose what's there. I choose what's right in front of me at the moment, rather than thinking further into the future about what's best. What's best. See, see, here's the deal. Uh, um, I, I know something about every person in this room. If we were to take a survey, we would all say, we would all say that we want to be healthy. We'd all say, but, but then we make choices that sort of, Deem otherwise. I mean, um, 
Praise be to God that Red Robin has all-you-can-eat fries, and every time I go there, I want to make him pay for that decision. (laughs) Amen? We'd say we want to be healthy, but we'd make choices that, that sort of push us in the other direction. Those of us who are parents, you see, we could take a poll, and every single parent in the room would go, I, I want to be an awesome parent. But here's what I know about myself, is that sometimes those kids drive me crazy. <laughs> and it's a whole lot easier to hop on Facebook or to hop on Twitter than it is to engage my kids. See, all of us would say that we want to be financially free, that maybe we even want to be debt-free, but we make choices that lead us in the other direction. I bet we could take a poll and every follower of Jesus in here would say, I want to make an impact for the kingdom of God. But oftentimes we choose fear over faith or we just sort of coast through life. See, here's 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 the crux of this morning. I think all of us have some dreams inside of our heads, some some desires, some hopes. And none of us will get there by accident. Nobody wakes up 20 years into a marriage without some sort of intentionality and goes, Wow, we we have a great marriage. How did that happen? No, No parent has teenagers that they have a great relationship with. And, and I've heard that happens. <laughs> but no parent has, has teenagers that they have a great relationship with. And they go, I, I don't know how that happened. See, see, the things we want most in life, we will not get if we're not intentional. If we don't decide to live a certain way. And so if we as followers of Jesus say one of the most important things for us, about us, is that we would make an impact for the kingdom of God. Then how do we live with intentionality? See, because here's the truth of the matter, friends, that for everybody in this room this morning, is that if we continually, perpetually choose easy over best... We will not get to the end of our life and say we've fought the good fight, we've kept the faith, we've finished the race. We will not get there. We will not get there. And so, how do we live with intentionality? How do we live intentionally to make an impact? And, and this morning, my, my hope and my prayer has been that this serves almost as a, as a roadmap for that. Uh, Here's the big idea that we're going to be circling around this morning. And I think we all know this, but I just want to state it up front is that we don't become influencers or we become influencers through intentionality, not accidentally. We're not going to wake up one morning and go, wow, I don't know how that happened, that I have an amazing relationship with Jesus and I have a great relationship with my spouse and and my kids are following God and, 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 and on and on and on. The things that we really long for in life will not happen without some sort of intentionality. Um, I I saw this as I was studying this week in that um, Time magazine every year lists their top 100 most influential people. And as I sort of dug a little bit deeper, um, they did this online poll too. And there's this guy, you may be familiar with him. uh, There's this guy that won this year and his name is Anonymous. Literally, Anonymous won the online poll. I'm not, I'm not proposing, I'm not proposing for any of us that 
we make this list. In fact, I could really, I mean, it'd be fun to know somebody on that list, but I, I could really care less if any of us make the list of what time deems is the most influential people in the world. I, I, but I do know this, I do know this, is that I don't care if I make that list, but I do want to be the most influential person in my world, in, in my family's world, in my, in my neighborhood, in my workplace. You see, I, I don't think, I don't think that God cares if you're famous at all. I mean, he could snap his fingers and make it happen if he wanted to. I don't think he cares if you're famous. I, I think he cares if you're faithful. He cares if you're faithful. And part of the wrestling and doing a series that we're calling Storyline, and we're looking at how do we live a better story, the push is always towards how do we, how do we live it globally? And we start to think grand, and, and we lay our lives over the Apostle Paul and go, listen, I'm, the, I'm sort of I'm small potatoes compared to him, and I don't know if God really cares what you do in the globe, I think he cares what you do in the family, in your home, in your neighborhood. And as you do that faithfully, sometimes he chooses to say, all right, we're going to take this guy or this gal and put them in front of everyone. Because they were faithful with the little things. And so he uses us for bigger. But see, here's what I know about a lot of you. You hear me even preach a subject like this. And you start to get uncomfortable. You start to go, listen, I'm, I'm, I know my world. I'm comfortable in my world. And I know how small my world is. And Ryan, even if I made an impact there, it wouldn't make all that much of a difference. There's this old African proverb that I think nails it. And it says this. If you think you're too small to make a difference, try spending a night in a closed room with a mosquito. And I think God would say the same thing to you and to me. It's not about being famous at all. It's about being faithful. And when we're intentional and when we're faithful, what he does is he uses us to make an influence, to have an influence. But that doesn't happen by accident. Let me show you this in the, in the book of Acts and Paul's interaction in Athens, I, I think, illustrates this beautifully for us. And what we're going to see is just four things that, that I think are staples of every intentionally influential life. And here's how Luke starts as he records Paul's journey in the book of Acts, chapter 17, starting in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, and the them here is Silas and Timothy, in Athens he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, now here's the deal. Um, Athens is um, one of the greatest ancient cities that there was. It was still, at the time that Paul gets there, it's still the cultural hub of the world. I mean, it's where culture, art, media, I mean, everything that happened that influenced the rest of the world started in Athens. And Rome at this point is, is really the power broker, but Athens is the culture maker. It was one of the most 
beautiful, by all accounts, one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient world. The Acropolis, I mean, people testify that the Acropolis is just absolutely breathtaking. It's just when you, when you see it, it just evokes emotion in you. And so as, as Paul's waiting for Timothy and Silas to get there, he decides to go on a little stroll. He decides to go on a little walk. And, and look at what he sees. He's waiting in Athens. He's greatly distressed to see a city that's full of idols. Literally in the Greek, it's this, it's this word for um, to be under. Like it's, it's under this cloud, this fog, this blanket of idolatry. Um, it's, it's smothered in it. It's smothered in it. And notice his reaction to it. Notice his reaction to it. He's greatly distressed. Some of the ancient writers had a, had a saying, and they, they would say it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man. Uh, uh, others would say that there's literally, that, that, that Athens was one great altar and one great sacrifice. And so Paul follows great philosophers like Aristotle and Socrates and, and Plato, and he steps into this world. And here's his reaction. He's greatly distressed. If you have your own Bible, you can circle that, underline it, star it. In the Greek, it's this word literally that it was a medical term for a seizure. But it came to be known and it came to be used as a, as a, as a way to um, sort of illustrate being irritated or being provoked or, or roused to anger. And so as Paul stands at the brink of this beautiful city and as he walks through the streets and as he walks through the marketplace, he doesn't see the beauty. He sees the idolatry. He sees the brokenness. He sees the hopelessness. He sees the lifelessness. And he's stirred by it. And it's not just that he's angry at them. It's that he's heartbroken. Because these people are giving their lives to things that will never bring them freedom and will never bring them hope and will never bring them joy. And he's stirred by it. Every, every eye, just look at me for a second. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. It's indifference. And so as Paul walks through this city, his heart is broken for it. It's hurting for it. Why? Because he loves these people. Because he loves this city. Because he loves Jesus. And he knows that Jesus brings freedom and hope. And these people aren't seeing it. And they're not tasting it. And they don't know it. And so, I think the great uh, author, Pastor John Stott, puts it well. And he says, the reason we cannot speak the way Paul speaks is because we cannot see what Paul sees and we do not feel what Paul feels. So how do we become intentional influencers? People who who don't just have a plate that's overflowing, but who have room for the things that God is really calling them to step into. I think this is the first thing that we do, that we identify our passion and engage with purpose. That's what Paul does. I mean, Paul's in touch enough with God 
The Holy Spirit stirs in him that when he sees the brokenness, when he sees the hurt, when he sees the pain going on in Athens, he says, I'm not just going to step back and take my little walking tour and call it good. He says, I'm going to step into the culture. I'm going to step into their world and I'm going to try my best to bring hope. But the first thing that he does is he's deeply moved, greatly distressed by what's going on in this city. So let me ask you, what are some of the things on your heart? What are some of the things that Maybe, maybe there's things out in our world that you look at in your, in our neighborhood, in our city, whatever it is that, that just break your heart. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to be an influencer there. Maybe He's calling you to have an impact there. I mean, for, for those who are parents, I mean, God is calling you that your heart needs to break for your kids. That we would that we would fight for the souls of our kids. That this isn't this isn't just a game we're playing, and this isn't just a, a great blessing from God. This is a calling, friends. For those of you who are in high school or college, I mean, what is it about your school that breaks your heart? How do you engage it? One of the things I love about stealth. Fellowship Church is the way that over the years this church has acted on some of those things that we've said that that breaks our heart and we're just not willing to to be content in our city. We want to be a change agent in our city for those things. Just a few that I can think of. Um, yesterday there was a a tea for royal family that does outreach to foster kids to to bring hope to people to kids who in many ways don't have hope. That's that's awesome. Um, Rick and Barb Wise with Wise Choices and, and bringing um, hope into public schools. Our food bank that feeds 50 to, to 70 families every single week, giving them enough groceries theoretically to make it through the week unless they like to eat like I like to eat. Then they'll probably need to get Alt- Alternatives preg- Pregnancy Center. I, I mean, working with women, building into women who either are, have had an abortion or are abort intent and, and bringing them the hope of the gospel, the grace and mercy of Jesus. These all started because somebody said, I'm greatly distressed because people are settling for far less than the gospel wants to bring them. So, so what stirs your heart? You want to be an influencer? Spend enough time in the presence of Jesus to allow him to, to prick your heart. And to give you a calling. And hey, 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 don't rule out the marketplace either. And that's right where Paul is. I mean, it's the, it's the banking hub, it's the stock market, it's the philosophers, it's the educators, it's the public sphere that Paul says, that's my mission and I want to engage it there. It's almost as though he believed Proverbs 1 verses 20 through 21 that read like this. Wisdom calls aloud in the streets. She raises her voice in public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out in the gateways of the city. She makes her speech. It's almost though, as though Paul believed that. And Jesus, may we guard against. May we guard against. Rather than going to the streets and rather than going to the public squares to declare wisdom, we just come inside these walls 
and sing our praises really loud. Man, that God would stir in us a desire to take his mission into the public sphere. And that's where Paul goes. That's where Paul goes. And so I think that's first, is that that we need to be the type of people who are stirred by God to have a passion that we're willing to pursue. Second, here's the way. Here's the way Luke's account continues. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, just a moment. I, I am, if anybody ever says that to me, I'll just go, Paul got that too. Paul got it too. Okay. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, circle that star, highlight it in your own Bible, whatever you do. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. Because, spoiler alert, that's the crux of Paul's message. Jesus and his, the redeemed, um, the redemption that he offers through his resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting at the Areopagus. Now, you have to, just a quick time it, Paul's finally being brought to a meeting and, and not a stoning. I mean, he's got to be going, oh, praise Jesus. I can, I, I can handle, I can handle the debates, but please put down the rocks. <laughs> Where they said to him, may we know that this, may we know that this new teaching, what this new teaching is that you are presenting You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. A lot of coffee drinking going on. And Paul stood up in the meeting at the Areopagus, and this is a bold move because these are very secular people in a very secular society, not all that welcoming of somebody who's going to come and say, listen, all these gods are great, but let me tell you about the one true God. This is a bold move by the Apostle Paul. Bold move. And he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious for I walked around looking and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. I was con- convicted because I don't know that I would have reacted the same way Paul reacted. With all of the knowledge that he has with all of the insight, with all of the expertise, you know what I I think I would have been um, inclined to do? Is just say, hey, saw about 30,000 gods. You guys are idiots. I don't know if I would have been as tame as Paul, and I don't know if I would have done what Paul does, but, but see what Paul does. Is he goes and he walks through the city. And he looks and he listens and he hears the stories and he sees the idols and his heart breaks. And then really intentionally, and he didn't do this in every city that he went to. He didn't have the same method everywhere. See, he had the same message everywhere, but he had different methods wherever he went. And in Athens, what he does, 
What he does is he finds a way, he sort of gets his foot in the door and he says, I see that you have a, an altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that God. His name is Jesus. But what he's doing is he's building a bridge. He's building a bridge. And I think if we're going to be people that make an intentional influence, not only do we have a passion that we pursue, but I think we have to be people who build bridges don't, and we don't construct walls. How easy would it have been for Paul to slip back and to say these people have no idea what the gospel is. And so we're just going to hold them at at bay. We're going to hold them at arm's length. And in fact, we're just going to go to the synagogue and those people at least sort of have a basis of talking about what we're talking about. But now what he does is he builds a bridge, not a wall. I love it the way that that the apostles stated it as they were coming back from the Jerusalem council and in summarizing what they decided about whether or not Gentiles would be able to be followers of Jesus. Here's what they said. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Hmm. I wonder what it would look like for the church to turn into master bridge builders rather than wall constructors. I mean, all the different sort of specters of culture that we have alienated ourselves from. I wonder what it would look like for us to create some bridges rather rather than walls. And, And see, did you know that the Hebrew word for priest actually literally means bridge builder? They were bridge, they, they built bridges between God and, and people. And did you know, did you know that if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that, that the New Testament says you are a kingdom of priests? We're a, we're a room full of bridge builders. I just think I get really good at constructing walls, though. Uh, look at the way that Jesus masterfully And he did it so well. He built bridges so well that people who were building walls eventually killed him. Listen to this. It says uh, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, this is a a short little story about a tax collector named Matthew. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Matthew was, uh, as, as all tax collectors were, Matthew was a traitor. Matthew had sold out on his own country and purchased the right from Rome to rob his own people. That's who Matthew was. He was hated. Came up on a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. I think that would have been the reaction of the crowd too. They're going, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus was a, Smart guy. I mean, he heals, he heals people. He feeds the sick and he's the son of God. And we, we believe that until he invited Matthew. Because Matthew doesn't believe the right thing and he doesn't behave the right way. And so the Pharisees, they built this wall around Matthew and everybody else like Matthew. And they said, if you don't believe this way, if you don't behave this way, then, then you have no part in God. And what Jesus did is he just kicked down their wall, built a bridge and said, hey, Matthew, come and follow me. And here's what Jesus believed. 
Jesus believed that if people followed him, their beliefs would change and their behavior would change. But he didn't require that they change before they came and followed. So he says to this tax collector, this sinner, this guy who, if he walked in these doors now, we would go, security in place? We all right? It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and, the, and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Friends, I always want us to be a church where sinners are welcome. And I, and I don't know what kind of walls we build, but I want to be, I want us to, to be the best stinking bridge builders in Littleton. There's enough people building walls. That's really easy to do. You don't need to be creative to do that. In fact, you can just stay right here and do that. But if we're going to build bridges, it means that we need to have touches in our community where we're willing to interact with people like Matthew, who many churches have said, we don't, we don't want anything to do with you. It's an intentional influence. It's not going to happen by accident for, for any person in this room, and it's not going to happen for us as a church. It's going to be because we decide that we love the people that God loves and that he's called us to be bridge builders in our world. Man, I'm convicted. I'm I'm so quick to dismiss people that haven't made it inside my wall. And I wonder how God would stir us this morning to start believing that he would have us build bridges. Okay, so we've seen that we, that we need to be stirred by God to be have passion and be purposeful, that we, we build, build bridges, we don't construct walls. And then it goes on like this in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 24. Paul says, he stands up in the Areopagus and says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by human hands. Now, he's saying this a little tongue and cheek to people who are holding gods that they carved out of stone and wood. His, the punchline is, my God is better than yours. <laughs> and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives life and breath. And everything else. So so he said, in direct contrast to your God that you made, that you carved with your little Swiss Army pocket knife, and that you bow down to and pray to, in contrast to that God, my God created everything you see around you. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined, listen to this, he determined the times set For them and the exact places that they should live. If you have your own Bible, underline that because that is a game changer. 
God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here's what, here's what Paul just said. Here's what Paul just said. That God divinely determined the exact time that you would be born. See, some of you may have been a mistake to your parents. You were not a mistake to God. Your parents may have gone, gone, what? But God went, amen. I'm going to walk them through it. It's going to be all right. The exact time. And he goes on to say, and the exact, the times and the exact, I love that Paul uses that word, exact places where they should live. Not just, not just the place that they should be born, but the place that they should live. So the fact that you're living in Littleton, Colorado, or Centennial, or Highlands Ranch, or Denver, or where, wherever you live, is not an accident. It's not an accident. The fact that, that Kelly and I moved back to Colorado, not an accident. The fact that we live in the neighborhood that we live in, not an accident. And the fact that my neighbors live in their house, not an accident. The fact that my dog barks so loud, that's an accident. But, but the fact that... <laughs> and he says, listen, listen, listen. God didn't just do this because he, he has fun determining where people will live. Look at that. Look at the so that. Circle it in your Bible. God did this so that men, women, boys, girls, people would seek him and reach out for him and find him. See, you may not be missional in your neighborhood, but God has a mission for you in your neighborhood. You may not have realized that that Monday morning was a mission field, but for God, he's saying, listen, the fact that you have your job that you have right now is not an accident. What would it look like to start to live like we really believe that God had ordainedly orchestrated where we live and what we do and the family that we're in and the neighborhood that we call home? See, see people that make an intentional Impact. They trust. They're people that trust in God's sovereignty, not in their own ability. Um, we come up with a ton of excuses, don't we? We come up with a ton of excuses. Well, God, I just, I don't, I don't speak all that well. Well, God, I, um, I don't really. I'm uncomfortable talking with my neighbors and, and all the things. And, and oh man, I. I I'm the chief of all sinners. What would it look like to start to really believe that God had a purpose and a plan and that he was behind that? I I love the story um, of a man. His name is Nick Vujicic. He was born with what's called tetraamelia syndrome, a rare genetic disorder. As you can see from the picture, he has no arms and legs. And growing up, he, he struggled emotionally with people just uh, tearing him down. But as a follower of Christ, Nick has what he calls a ridiculously good life. Ridic- Here, here's what he writes in his book. 
When I'm asked how I can claim a ridiculously good life when I have no arms or legs, people assume I'm suffering from what I lack. They inspect my body and wonder how I could possibly give my life to God who allowed me to be born like this. Others have attempted to soothe me by saying that God has all the answers and then when I'm in heaven, I'll find out his intention. Instead, I choose to live by what the Bible says, which is that God is the answer today, yesterday, and always. When people read about my life or witness me living it, they're prone to congratulate me for being victorious over my disabilities. I tell them that my victory came in surrender. It comes every day when I acknowledge that I can't do this on my own, and so I say to God, I give it to you. And once I yielded, the Lord took my pain and turned it into something good. He gave my life meaning when no one and nothing else could. And if God can take someone like me, he writes, someone without arms and without legs and use me as his hands and his feet, isn't that beautiful irony? He can use anybody. It's not about ability. The only thing God needs from you is a willing heart. Nick travels all around the world speaking. So, let's let's give our excuses to God. He's going, I can I can use anybody. I can use anybody. I wonder if we might start to look at Monday morning a little different, friends. So see, I I think I think um, bored Christian should be an oxymoron. Because God has a mission for you. He has a plan for you. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, that's Paul's point. Listen to the way that this finishes up. I'm going to pick up where I left off in verse 28. And it says, For in him we move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. This is another bridge. Paul's going to quote a a, a pagan secular poet. Some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul's just given them the gospel message. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men. By raising him, and the him here is Jesus, from the dead. In essence, Paul gives the pagan, secular Athenians a picture of a crucified, risen Messiah. You want to make an impact? You want to make an intentional impact? I don't know about you, but I, I want to make an impact that goes way beyond the however many years God gives me on this earth. Here's what he says. If that's the way that we want to live. Be people who present a life-changing grace and truth of Jesus. Did you catch this? I mean, John in his gospel says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And here, Paul holds out this bridge, this olive branch to these Athenian philosophers, and he says, God, you're, you're his children. He's been good to you. You can taste his goodness. You can see his goodness, but he's coming to judge. 
You see, without both, without a recognition of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy towards us, and the fact that we're people in need of a Savior, we do not have a whole picture of the gospel. He presents both grace and truth. And see, the greatest influencers, not the most notorious, not the most famous, but the greatest influencers, and I would argue probably for you, the greatest influence in your life is the person that stepped out to present the grace and truth of Jesus to you. Uh, That's going to get harder and harder to do. And I'm not a culture gloom and doom guy at all. But that's going to get harder and harder to do. In fact, this week, I read that um, the Military military Religious Freedom Foundation, it's ironically called that, is calling on the Air Force to enforce a regulation that they believe calls for the court-martial of any service member caught sharing Jesus. It's a, it's a regulation that's been in place for a long time. And they've just now said, hey, we, we should enforce that. But before we go, whoa! Which was my reaction too. Can I, can I just remind you? Christianity has never taken off and it's never spread in any sort of healthy fashion because the government said, why don't you tell us more about Jesus? <laughs> Friends, this is, this is an opportunity for us. It's going to get harder, yes. But God is going to use people more and more like you and like me and like Paul who've been changed by the gospel who say Jesus is ridiculously better than we could ever be to ourselves. That God has been gracious to us in spite of us and I just need to share it with somebody. I need to tell people regardless of what happens to me. I need to tell somebody. That's the type of people God uses. People, God uses people who the gospel gets in in such a way that it drives so deep that it has to get out. That's influence. And that's influence that every person in this room can have and is called to have for your joy and for God's glory. And you look at the way. You look at the way. Just grab your outline. If you've taken notes, just get it out for a second. You look at the way that Jesus epitomizes every point we've talked about. Is, is he passionate, purposeful? Oh, friends, he, he left heaven for you. He he left heaven. He was so passionate, not just about the world, but about you, that he was willing to leave all the praise and all the worship and all the glory and clothe himself in humanity to step into history because he was for you, because he loved you, because he was pursuing you, because he wasn't just willing. He was greatly distressed at the fact that humanity had said no thank you to him. Does he build a bridge? He is the bridge. He is the bridge. That your sin separated you and he came and through his perfect life and his atoning death, he made a way for you and for me to stand blameless before the throne of God, pure, holy, righteous, 
man. And he is the picture of grace and truth. Which leads us beautifully to celebrate his table this morning. Because in it, we see both. See, see, as followers of Jesus, I think God knew that we were going to have spiritual amnesia and we were going to have, need these reminders where he'd just say, okay, remember that I'm gracious. Remember that I'm good. Remember that I love you. Remember that you needed rescuing. Remember it. And so we set up, he set up these, these ordinances for us to remember and communion is one of them. Where we remember his body given and his blood shed for us on our behalf and for 2,000 years followers of Jesus have been reminding themselves of the truth and the beauty of the gospel that God is not a God that builds walls he's a God who builds bridges and the bridges name is Jesus and if you know him this morning you are welcome to take communion and celebrate his goodness